This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, and welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UCSD. It is my great pleasure to welcome tonight our speaker, Dr. Bruce Applegate, who is an expert in, in seafloor mapping and underwater technologies. He has come to us from the University of Hawaii. He's taken the position of associate director here at Scripps in charge of shipboard operations and marine technical support. So under shipboard operations, he's in charge of one of the largest academic fleets in the world. We have three ships and a floating platform. Does anybody know what that's called? Flip. Flip. So he's in, his job is to take care of all of those. And under the marine technical support um, category, his job is to run our Nimitz Marine Facility and to take care of all those shipboard systems. It's quite an onerous task. And in that category, while he's doing all of that work, um, he's also been working very hard to um, help us with the acquisition of our newest global class research vessel, the RV Sally Ride. Tonight I'd like to welcome Dr. Bruce Applegate for an exclusive insider's guide to the RV Sally Ride. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks, Harry. Um, It's so great to work with with Harry. Uh, He's brought such energy to the aquarium here. Uh, as Harry said, I'm going to talk about our newest research vessel, the research vessel Sally Ride. Um, tonight, uh, what I thought I'd try to do is give you a little bit of perspective on uh, why ships are so important to scientists, and especially scientists here at Scripps, and what Scripps um, does for the whole national oceanographic community in terms of supporting them through the operation of our ships here. Um, so a little bit of history. Uh, and then a little bit about the story of the development of the idea of this new ship um, and how it came about. And then I'd like to show you some of the really cool things uh, uh, about the ship and what it can do. Uh, and some pictures of the construction, because if any of you build things or like to work with really big tools, building a ship is about the neatest thing you can do. So. Uh, Scripps uh, has a long and glorious history of operating ships. Significantly, we operated the first purpose-built oceanographic research vessel in the United States. Um, The propulsion was different back then, but the the scientists were just as committed uh, to to their research. Um, And over the course uh, of more than 100 years, we've operated research vessels. And in large part, um, these vessels either um, came to us after serving in the U.S. Navy or were purpose-built by the U.S. Navy and operated by us as academic research vessels. And this is a model that's worked extraordinarily well, and it continues to this day with the Sally Ride. And uh, in the olden days, ships were black and white, and you can see there's more than, uh, more than a dozen different vessels that we've operated here that, that are uh, uh, bigger than 50 meters or 50 feet in length and uh, ocean-going vessels. Um, another thing that uh, Scripps really pioneered in the early days of oceanography was this idea of expeditionary oceanography, where we would put a group of scientists onto a ship and we would, they would shove off and they'd come back months later, but they'd go do great things. And... Uh, Uh, Back in those days, very little was known about the seabed. Um, Scientists had learned a lot about um, what was down there by steaming back and forth across the Pacific during World War II and looking at echo sounders. And they knew there were some things that just didn't make sense in terms of their model of uh, the the way that uh, the Earth worked in terms of geology and physical oceanography. So after the war, there was a a huge effort um, in multiple cruises to go out and do these long expeditions and then come back to Scripps and uh, process the data, and, uh, and some truly remarkable new work was done in uh, geology and geophysics, physical oceanography, and, uh, and ships have been a very important part um, of what we do here at, at Scripps scientifically. Now, um, we're here on the beautiful La Jolla campus at Scripps. Um, there's a, a, a hidden gem that is part of UC San Diego that uh, only privileged few know about. It's the Nimitz Marine Facility in Point Loma, and it's where we keep our ships. And we have since uh, the 1960s. Uh, the original facility was built uh, in 1967 and then expanded in 1973. Uh, it's about six acres. and. Uh, 
Just uh, this year, we completed a $20 million revitalization program that completely, uh, that completely rebuilt the pier and the wharf. Um, when I got here eight years ago, I, my marine superintendent suggested I look under the pier. And uh, I did, and I, I'm just a geologist, I'm not a civil engineer, but even I was smart enough to know that the pilings were supposed to be connected at the bottom and the top. <laughs> and, and that wasn't true, so we, uh, <laughs> we started a program about eight years ago to, to um, get all the permitting, the funding, and do the construction. Uh, pile driving lasted nine months, and if there's any La Playa residents here, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, but we got through it, and we have a facility that's fantastic now that's ready to serve uh, the next uh, 7,500 years. Uh, we, we took uh, global climate change into account, and it's two feet higher than it used to be. So uh, when, when I came here, um, one of the things that my boss told me I needed to pay attention to was this upcoming proposal for the uh, ocean-class research vessel. And... Uh, um, I started looking at uh, things that we did here at Scripps to try to justify uh, us winning this proposal. And I didn't have to look very hard because um, there are so many great scientists here that do such great things on the sea. And as this graphic shows, nobody, nobody sails uh, on the oceans as much or as well as Scripps scientists. Uh, this graphic shows that uh, um, this is, this is uh, effective for the five-year period when we wrote the proposal. But uh, uh, the, the numbers on the right represent the numbers of funded operational days at sea. So you can see on the top there that uh, scientists from Scripps and the University of California um, are by far uh, the largest ship users. If you break Scripps out by themselves, they're number two. Um, and then below, there are other institutions um, who go to sea, too. <laughs> but the most important two are on top. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me to come here to Scripps and to talk to people. I'm a geologist, and, you know, sometimes you get, you get stovepiped into your own discipline. And I would go to sea to do what, what I liked to do, which was map the seafloor. And we'd go out on ships, and you'd go out with eight or nine people, these big ships. It was very luxurious. Everybody got their own stateroom. And uh, then I came here, and I got to meet people who were not just geologists and geophysicists, but physical oceanographers, chemical oceanographers, biologists, uh, atmospheric chemists. And those people would fill the ship up, and uh, they would have every bunk taken. And, and I got to meet just the most extraordinary people who I never would have met otherwise. And that's one of the fascinating things about my job is that, is that I get to meet everybody in all these different disciplines. And what I tried to show in this slide here is that there are a lot of people here that go to sea and do a lot of things. It means a lot um, to uh, our students here. Uh, seagoing oceanography has been a cornerstone of our education and training programs. And, uh, and here at Scripps, we send our students to sea with, uh, with mentors and, uh, and senior scientists so that they can learn uh, and, and really grow into the next uh, generation of successful oceanographic uh, researchers as well. So um, ships are very important to us. And uh, being important to us, uh, we go all over the world doing what's uh, important to different scientists. This graphic shows the, the track lines from uh, five of our recent big ships. So this isn't even all the track line data that we've got. Um, but uh, it shows uh, where the ships Melville, Roger Revelle, New Horizon, Robert Gordon Sproul, and Thomas Washington have gone. Um, uh, over their careers, and you, uh, you can see we've got the Pacific pretty well covered, um, starting to fiddle in in the Indian Ocean and Southern Oceans as well. Um, but what ships give Scripps and the University of California is the ability to project ourselves, our ability to do research anywhere in the world, um, from ice edge to ice edge, across the equator and every ocean. And uh, since we are floating laboratories, uh, it's a fantastic um, way to really project uh, the research that we do at the University of California. Uh, something that I'm very proud of here at Scripps uh, is a, a program that we have that's unique in the United States. It's the UC Ship Funds Program that is a competitive annual program that allows our students and early career faculty to apply for their own research time at sea. So they get to dream up their own research 
And then if, they're, uh, if they write a good proposal and they're selected, they get to put together their science team, and then we send them to sea with experienced oceanographers and technicians so that they get to not just practice or see oceanography being done, but they get to do it. And some of the coolest projects have gotten done over the last eight years as part of this program. Everybody knows about the great Texas-sized garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean. Well, uh, Miriam Goldstein, who was a student here, that's how she went out and, and did that original research that really went viral after she came back, and now um, she truly raised awareness of plastics in the oceans. And, uh, and that is a, is a direct result of the UC Shipman's program, and, uh, and it also provides super good training for our students uh, so that they can good, be good professional oceanographers as well. Uh, one of the other things that we use our ships for all the time is developing new instrumentation. Our entrepreneurial spirit here at Scripps uh, um, uh, is remarkable, and the ability to go out to sea and uh, test instruments on our ships is critical in order to get them to work right and so that we can go out and invent the instruments that people use to make the next uh, important observations at sea. And sort of lastly... Uh, <laughs> Our mariners here at Scripps are a key part of why we're successful. Our mariners are um, credentialed Coast Guard mariners, so even though our big ships are owned by the Navy, uh, we're a civilian operation and we operate our ships uh, um, uh, under the U.S. Coast Guard rules. And many of our mariners, our senior mariners, have been here 30, 35 years. They come in and they may start as, uh, as uh, able-bodied uh, seamen and work their way up the hawse pipe and uh, end up being a captain. And you, you just can't buy the experience that these people have. And, and why do they do it? Because they love our scientists. They love what we do. And they're just as committed to the scientific mission as our scientists are. So our ships are organized uh, as part of the uh, University National Oceanic, Oceanographic Laboratory System, or UNALS. And um, we don't operate in a vacuum. So you can see on this slide that uh, there are many vessels that uh, are operated as academic research vessels, and we're just part of this larger um, organization. And uh, we stick together because uh, most of the funding for going to sea comes from the federal government. And, uh, and this organization was stood up so that we could collectively work more efficiently and make sure that when scientists need to go to sea, they've got the right platforms in the right part of the world to do that. And how do we go to sea <clears throat> at Scripps? Building on our expeditionary oceanographic heritage, what we're really good at is being away from home for a long time. So uh, in this slide, you see a two-and-a-half-year mission, uh, the Magellan Expedition, where uh, one of our ships, the Melville, uh, left San Diego. And it went to a whole bunch of different ports. It started in San Diego and went to Honolulu, and then from there to the South Pacific. Each one of those legs had a, a, a science party on it that went out and collected useful data. So we don't go from place to place just burning diesel. Um, our mission is to be as efficient as possible and so that we, we schedule our ships so that there's a science party on board and they're collecting useful data wherever they go. And the crew doesn't stay on board for two and a half years. Uh, they'll uh, typically rotate on for a, a couple of months and then come home for a couple of weeks of vacation. Um, the scientists, however, will just typically be on for one leg. So they'll, they'll ship their stuff to maybe uh, Wellington, New Zealand, and then uh, they'll get on and go to Brisbane, and then they'll take their stuff off, and then the next science party will come on. And we repeat that over and over again. And uh, nobody does this better than Scripps. And that's why we work so well in the Western Pacific, uh, Southern Ocean, and Indian Ocean. And uh, being able to work over there gives us the ability to work in really remote places and, and do things all over the world. We install moorings uh, all over the world that, uh, that sit in one spot for long periods of time, years, and uh, send data back to us. Um, through the uh, Go Ship program, um, we do repeat hydrography missions. That uh, these the black lines on this show track lines that we do over and over again. Usually, uh, every couple of years, we'll go back and reoccupy one of these lines. A lot of what we know about things like global climate change um, 
are only possible because we have a long time series of data to, to recognize the changes that happen over decadal and longer periods. It's programs like this that can only be done on big ships funded by uh, federal sources, so long-term funding commitments, uh, and then uh, big institutions like Scripps that have the resources to have scientists to go out and do them. Um, those things make that kind of science possible. And also near and dear to us, uh, offshore California, this is a, a chlorophyll map of uh, Southern California when there's upwelling going on, where the red is, uh, is uh, uh, high chlorophyll, um, is understanding what's going on in our own ocean ecosystems so that uh, yeah, fisheries and, uh, and the, our ecosystems are well understood. And there's scientists here at Scripps that uh, devote a lot of their energy to going out and using a variety of tools they go out and um, measure uh, the physical characteristics of the water and uh, trying to link uh, physical oceanography with biological oceanography to understand the ecosystems. And although we use a lot of robots and moorings, what ties it all together, what makes it all possible is the ships that go out and, and deploy these things, recover them, and then take a series of data that you can't take any other way. Ships are important to us here at Scripps. In 2001, there was a, a federal uh, uh, report that tried to identify long-term needs of the academic research fleet. Uh, shortly after that report came out, um, and they realized that, that ships were going to be retired, so we needed to think about revitalizing our fleet. In 2002, a panel of scientists met in Salt Lake City and had the first meeting to dream up this idea of a new kind of ship, uh, which we call now the ocean-class research, research vessel. And in 2003, uh, these scientists who were organized through UNALS uh, put together what they call science mission requirements. So everything they thought a ship would have to do. And this is in 2003, and they were thinking maybe a decade down the track of what sort of science might need to happen then. Um, we're farther along than that now. Um, but this gives you an idea of the, the, the long, very deliberate process that has to happen to, to build a, a, something as big and important as a research vessel. Um, so in 2007, uh, those science mission requirements were uh, uh, amended. And in 2009, uh, it was announced that the Navy would build two new vessels that were going to be ocean-class vessels. And they would come into the fleet concomitant with the retirement of two other big vessels, the, the, the Woods Hole vessel, Knorr, and the Scripps vessel, Melville. Um, they weren't in, the new ships weren't intended to be a replacement for those ships. Um, the Navy made very clear that there was going to be a competitive process to identify the best institution to operate these two ships, the two ocean-class vessels. So what that precipitated was really a tremendously competitive proposal process um, where uh, the eminent oceanographic institutions in the United States submitted their very best proposals. And uh, uh, we submitted a proposal. And uh, this is the best letter I ever got. Um, this was to my boss at the time, Tony Habit, from uh, the chief of naval research uh, informing Scripps that we had been awarded uh, the research vessel, Agor 28. Um, these ships are they're given a Navy characterization, Agor, which is an acronym for Auxiliary General Oceanographic Research Vessel. And 28 were the 28th one in this series. Um, so at that time, um, we put together a timeline um, of what we were going to do. Uh, and it looked nothing like this timeline. Th this is what we actually did. Um, in actual fact, we're about uh, a little more than a year uh, behind our original schedule through um, processes that were completely outside of our control. But uh, the main uh, events in the, the life of the Sally Ride to date uh, are the, the, the dedication of the keel, uh, uh, the christening, and coming up very soon, um, the commissioning of the vessel, which will happen in a couple of weeks uh, here in San Diego. So uh, again, when you look at the dates, we were selected as operator in 2010, and uh, we're going to do we're going to be commissioned in 2016. So just that process is, is a pretty long process, and 
that stood on the shoulders of a much bigger process that happened starting in 2001. So uh, these big facilities are uh, uh, a really big deal. You only do it once every 40 years or so. So we want to be sure that we do it right. Um, so we, we're pretty careful about how we did it. So um, how do we do it? Um, I've never built a ship before. This was a, a really uh, interesting experience. Uh, and uh, um, basically, uh, this is what a ship looks like at the very beginning of its life. Uh, it comes in as, as pieces of metal and plate metal like this that get uh, either welded together or, or bent into shape. And, uh, and then uh, very skilled workers begin uh, putting together the, the rudiments of a frame. And uh, the construction process for us um, occurred in Anacortes, Washington, at uh, a really wonderful shipyard, Dakota Creek Industries, uh, which is on Puget Sound. And when it's not raining, it's one of the most uh, lovely little towns you can imagine. <laughs> And the fact that it rains so much is why a lot of the construction was actually done uh, inside, either in a tent or in another house they call the big house, um, where they make the big, big platforms. But uh, despite being a small town, kind of far away from uh, uh, big cities, the technology that they used to build this ship was really remarkable. Um, they used uh, precision cutting tools, uh, uh, robot welding systems, and uh, the, the fit and finish of the Sally Riot is, is really remarkable. Um, every weld uh, is well done. And uh, when you build a ship, it's a lot like building uh, a ship out of Legos. You make the Lego block, and then you, you put the Lego block together with other Lego blocks, and pretty soon you've got a ship. Um, this is the bow section uh, when it uh, was being uh, fitted out in the, in the shipyard. And, uh, it's a mark of pride for us here at Scripps that, uh, that there was only one place uh, on the West Coast where the, the complex bends required of the plate steel could be done, and that was here in San Diego at NASCO. So uh, I mean, I'm proud of San Diego, uh, and it would have been great if we could have built a ship here. We couldn't, but it turns out that it got its very start um, at, at NASCO in San Diego. So Sally Ride has her has roots here as well. Um, you play with really big tools when you build a ship, um, big cranes. And so uh, this is the, the, the stern section um, being constructed here. It's upside down. So the, the deck is down here, and uh, there's the, the frames going across. And these are tanks uh, in the lower part of the hold. But you can see it's, it's being welded together upside down. And then uh, they weld on tabs to the bottom plate once they got the plate on. And they use a big honking crane to lift it up and then slowly and carefully they turn it over using the crane. And then they uh, bring it back down and then they ease it up and then they start welding it together. It's pretty cool. Um, I mentioned that the fit and finish of this ship was remarkable. The, the, the work ethic of everyone in the yard was outstanding. Uh, these people were just the nicest people you could ever work with, and they were outstanding craftsmen. And um, that was apparent from the very top down of their organization. This is, I mentioned the big house earlier. This is a, a big shed where they do uh, the, the fitting out of some of the really big modules. And when they're ready to move those modules uh, across the street this way to where the ship is, they put them on a, a special truck it's, uh, there's a driver right in there, and it's uh, supporting the, plot, the, the ship on this platform. And there's somebody driving the truck. Well, it turns out that this is Dick Nelson, the president of Dakota Creek Industries. And he, is, uh, he takes so much care <laughs> of his ships that he feels that uh, if something went wrong, he would feel terrible. So he wants to be the person driving the truck in case anything goes wrong. Yeah, uh, so uh, nothing went wrong. And uh, he drove it across the street. And you can see we uh, nestled it up there against one of the other modules and put it together. But th that really is a testament to sort of the, the, the whole organization up there, Dakota Creek, that built this wonderful ship. And I got to put a, a little shout out for, uh, for Paul Buren. This is our shipyard representative, Paul Buren. And I mentioned our mariners that work for us for their whole careers. 
Paul came to us from Cal Maritime 33 years ago, and he rose up through the ranks to be the chief engineer aboard the research vessel Melville. And when Melville was retired a couple of years ago, uh, he came over to Sally Ride to be the shipyard representative, and he was in the yard for two years every day working with everybody from the yard, and he's one of the reasons that the ship is going to be such a great ship. There's not a nut or a bolt or a weld on this ship that he hasn't looked at and he doesn't know about. So, Scripps quality. Another cool thing about the way this ship was built is uh, uh, most of it is steel, but the wheelhouse is aluminum. Now, the reason for that is because aluminum, of course, is lighter than steel. Uh, and one of the previous vessels that had been built uh, in the academic research fleet, uh, it came out to be a little bit too heavy. And that's a bad thing for ships, as it turns out. <laughs> and the only way they could uh, remediate that was to lengthen the ship at the cost of millions and millions of dollars. So when this ship was designed, uh, uh, they erred in, the, the, the naval architect erred in the, the conservative direction, built this out of aluminum, and so we've actually got two different metals. We've got steel down here and aluminum up there. The, the aluminum wheelhouse is, is built in, in, the, in the big house and then brought across and then lowered on with the crane to the top. Um, turned out our ship was too light. So we have the opposite problem now of the last ship that was built. <laughs> Uh, but um, if I'm going to have my choice, I choose being too light because adding weight, not as big a deal. But it's going to be fine. And uh, so once you get it all together, you need to move it. To move it, to go paint it. So you put it on these special little trucks and you run around and over the course of about, oh, an hour or so, you move it. And there are different times during the construction of the vessel where it had to be moved. And uh, again, it's just you can't believe that, that such big things can be handled and moved around like that. But uh, you have to do it all the time. So once it's uh, in position, you can slap a coat of paint on it. Beautiful scripts, red, white, and blue. This is about halfway done with our paint job. And uh, there's lots of traditions that go into building a ship. Um, some are superstitions. And there's one that I didn't know about, maybe you don't know about, um, but it turns out that uh, going back to Roman times, whenever the mainmast was affixed to a ship, for good luck, the crew would put a coin underneath the mainmast and then fasten the mainmast. This is the coin that now resides under our mainmast. If you can see that, it says, First U.S. Woman in Space, June 18th, 1983, Challenger. So this is uh, one of the commemorative coins from Sally Ride's first mission in space. We got it on eBay. <laughs> so it's carefully mounted, and then we lowered the mast down on top of the ship, and uh, that's where it'll be. So 40 years from now, when we take it apart, we'll find it there, hopefully. And you get a nice view. This is uh, the back of the ship. You can see the the Scripps uh, Trident there on the stack, and uh, Commercial Avenue in uh, Anacortes, beautiful Main Street in Anacortes. So whenever you drove down Main Street in Anacortes and looked at the end, you saw the Sally ride. Uh, it was a great view. And this is what she looked like, hauled out of the water with uh, all her paint on. And uh, at that point, it was time to float her. So if any of you have been involved in a and a, a ship christening before when they're launched. It's very exciting. Uh, usually you have them come down the ways and you try to hit it with a bottle of champagne as it goes down. If you miss it, there's somebody on the ship that cracks a bottle of champagne because it's very bad luck to not get champagne on it um, when it's getting wet. Um, those kinds of launches are very stressful and it turns out that many ships are damaged. Uh, one uh, recent ship shall remain nameless just about sank because it got a couple of holes poked in it as it came down the ways. So uh, I like uh, big fancy shows, but I'm, 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 I'm very nervous when it comes to my ship. Well, it turns out that uh, at Dakota Creek, you launch your ship a little bit differently. Nice. <laughs> yeah, safe and sane and in control. Um, True story, um, when we launched the vessel, this isn't the actual first floating. Um, Dick Nelson, the president who cares so much about his ships, came out uh, 
a couple of uh, weeks before this and floated the ship. Um, we needed a super high tide. It had to have a, a, a full moon, a, a king tide, high tide to do it. And it turned out to be in the middle of the night. It was 2, 2.30 in the morning. And so Dick came out, and they wanted to, to float the vessel and test it. And uh, secretly, he took on board a bottle of champagne. And before it got wet for the first time, he cracked a bottle of champagne. And, and since the, the Navy wasn't there, um, well, he wasn't supposed to do it. But he did. <laughs> and she is launched. So uh, the launch of the vessel uh, happened 2014. That's a long time ago. When, when we put it in the water, uh, really it was an empty shell. We still had to put everything inside it. So all the, all the walls, all the equipment. Uh, and so we've been working madly, uh, the shipyard has, to, to completely get it outfitted and delivered to us. Um, but uh, it has been delivered. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we brought the ship down from Anacortes. Maybe some of you uh, heard about it. It came to the uh, Loea. Ellen Browning Scripps Pier. We tooted the horn a couple times, did a couple of pier ruts. It was really a nice day, and it's great to be here in San Diego. Um, so what I'll do now is I'm going to show you just a couple of the cool things about the ship. I mean, this is up here in the wheelhouse. I'll show you what the bridge looks like. Um, uh, I'm a geologist, and I spend most of my time in the labs up here, but uh, one of the cool things about the ship is the propulsion and the engines and how maneuverable it is, and so I'll show you some of that. Um, one thing I wanted to point out here are these, these gray things on the sides. They're actually special cranes. And they allow us, they're, they're, they're kind of like robot arms. They allow us to grab a piece of instrumentation off the deck and then extend it off the side and then very carefully lower it into the water. So this is a new kind of technology um, that uh, these ships have. The, the prototype for these was uh, installed on the Roger Ravel. Um, we got that to work, so now we have a couple of them on Sally Ride. This really changes uh, the, the game for the technicians and scientists who have to work here on deck if it's uh, nasty, pitchy, rolly, and the weather's really bad. Um, when you can have really good positive control over what are you over lifting overboard, uh, it, it makes the job safer, and you can actually operate in higher sea states, so you can get more work done as well. So moving up to the bridge... Uh, this is the, the fantastic bridge of the Sally Ride. Uh, it's sort of a fish angle or uh, fish lens image of it. But uh, when we go to sea, we stand a watch um, that we typically has a, 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 a mate and uh, an able-bodied seaman standing watch. But really, one person can operate the whole ship from the bridge. Um, everything is automated. Uh, it has outstanding alarms. You can see what's going on in all the engine uh, machine spaces from the bridge. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really wonderful way to, uh, to control the ship. You'll notice there's, there's no big wooden wheel here because now it's all done with a little rheostat. Uh, uh, but it's very precise. Um, and one of the reasons that it is precise is this vessel is... Uh, outfitted with what's called dynamic positioning. Um, so what that allows us to do is we look at the, uh, we take GPS satellite positions and inputs from different sensors. So we know what the waves are doing, the winds. Uh, we know what the orientation of the ship is. And you can program in uh, what you want to do with the ship, whether you want to uh, heave to and stay in one spot. Um, you can do that very precisely, sort of with, within the, the diameter of about a pickup truck. Um, you could be out in big, nasty, stormy conditions, put in dynamic positioning, and you will stay exactly there, which is really important when you're lowering a piece of instrumentation you know, six miles down to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and you need to stay right on top of it. So uh, sort of a schematic of, of how that's done. As you can see, there's lots of different inputs into the ship, uh, wind, waves. Um, our ship also has... Uh, a, a tunnel thruster in the stern and a bow thruster forward. So uh, if you look back at the, the, the propellers, we have twin controllable pitch propellers. So what that means is that, is that these propellers spin, and you notice that they, they spin the opposite directions. Uh, just like a, a helicopter can, can angle its blades, um, our ship can angle its blades so that you can keep a constant RPM and just by feathering 
the, uh, the blades, you can either go forward or backward through the water. And you can, you can do that in opposition with your twin screws back here. And then when you also use your, your stern thruster and your bow thruster, you can very precisely maneuver the vessel. Uh, lots of boat owners, they pride themselves in going fast. Um, our bread and butter is going slow and precise. So when you're trying to, to come alongside something in the water and uh, have to pick it up, uh, you want to be able to do that very, in a very controlled fashion, and this allows us to do that. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, our ship is designed to be clean, so we use Tier 3 diesel engines. Uh, tier 4 hadn't gone into effect when we, uh, when we started building. So these are Tier 3 Cummins diesels. We have four generators on the ship, and uh, this is the engine room, and it, it's, you can see up here there's, there's a couple of windows, and that's where the, the, the engineer would work most of the time. Up there there's a control panel where they can control uh, every piece of uh, uh, equipment in the engine room. It's a spotless engine room. It's really, it's really wonderful, and as engine, room goes, engine rooms go, it's, it's not too hot and it's not too loud. Um, so. They've done a good job with a, a sort of the, the, the human side of this as well. Um, and when our generators are running, they make electricity. So our ships are propelled by diesel-electric propulsion systems. So that means we've got, uh, 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 we're an electrical power station at sea. So we're making electricity, and the amount of electricity defines how many of our gensets we'll have on. Um, typically, to transit um, uh, at 11 and a half knots, we'll have two gensets on. Um, if we're going to heave to and not have a lot of load, we'll turn one off to save fuel. Um, but all that gets controlled uh, in uh, our electrical uh, panel stations. So this is uh, one of our uh, engineers, and this is one of his duty stations working in there. Uh, one of the great things about this ship is its handling ability for uh, over-the-side equipment. Uh, a lot of what in oceanographers do is lift big, heavy things into the water. If they're lucky, they lift them back after they're done. Um, this is the control station in the, uh, the, the winch control room. We call it the doghouse. Um, it's really the most luxurious doghouse that you could ever hope to be in. So it's got a Recaro seat. It's got a panoramic view of the ocean. It's really a wonderful spot. And from there, you control our uh, robot arm. So this is a deployment um, using the robot arm, and this shows you a little bit of why it's valuable. Um, back in the old days, you might have uh, three people on taglines, and then a, a research technician um, running the show, giving hand signals to the crane operator. In this case, the crane, crane operator um, is running the show entirely uh, digitally, and uh, the res tech is standing by with a safety tagline just in case, because we are scripts. Um, but you can see that this, this little uh, grabber at the end of the robot arm um, has a uh, it's holding on to the top of this CTD rosette. And then this arm extends over the side and booms out, and then very carefully lowers the CTD package into the water, and then down it goes. So, and then when you recover, it's the same process in reverse. It comes up, it grabs on here, and then in control, it brings it back on board. So it's really a slick system. Um, one of the real advantages of Sally Ride is it has really strong equipment. Um, uh, scientists these days are just building bigger and heavier uh, instruments and platforms. We've got to serve them. So uh, Sally Ride has the, the biggest crane I've ever seen on a, on a ship, and uh, it's super strong. This is the weight test. Uh, we test them with water bags. Uh, so uh, this is uh, at full extension, um, lifting the, 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 the full load on the crane to test it. And then, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what this makes possible for us now and what we do at Scripps. Um, I'd love to show you pictures of Sally Ride in action, but we just got her, and so we don't have a whole lot. But uh, um, the things that we do that Sally Ride are going to do better um, are things like um, take scientists to see who are using new kinds of platforms like unmanned underwater, underwater vehicles. Um, here at Scripps, we, we design and build those. So we have an engineering program to do that ourselves. Scientists want to use those to, to, to do their own science. Salaride is going to be great for that. Um, something that's becoming more and more common now is using unmanned aerial vehicles. Uh, so uh, you can launch these off the ship and recover them on the ship, and they take sensors up, and uh, 
and extend the uh, observing capability of our vessels. Sally Ride's going to be really good at reflection profiling. So what this image shows is, in this case, this is a, a, a sonar that we tow behind the ship close to the bottom. And, uh, and it looks by, it sends uh, pulses of low frequency sound down. And then reflections down here in the sediments are recorded and in high fidelity. And so that you can see what, this is the seafloor. But buried underneath all these sediments is other topography. So what looks like it's flat on the surface is actually very interesting deeper. And Sally Ride's going to be great for these kinds of uh, programs because of its precise uh, track line following uh, abilities, but also because it's super quiet. It was designed to be a very acoustically quiet vessel. So when you're listening for things in the water like echoes, you can, you can hear a lot more. And uh, as a seafloor mapper, I got to put this in because this is what I spent most of my professional research career doing, looking at ping after ping as it's collected off the seabed. These are from a multi-beam uh, sonar system, not just one sonar system, but two. It turns out that multi-beams um, have different preferred depth ranges. And for years, Scripps has had great deep water capabilities, but not good shallow water capabilities. So anything shallower than about 500 meters, um, our ships weren't ideally suited to do. Sally Ride has two. We have a, a uh, shallow water, multi-beam sonar, and a deep water one that can be operated at the same time. When we came down from San Francisco to San Diego a couple of weeks ago, we mapped, we mapped three different faults offshore California that had never been really mapped in uh, high resolution before. So there's a grad student at UC Santa Cruz uh, who's working on that data right now. And just to give you an idea of, of this capability, we're in 52 meters of water, and these colors are the bathymetry here, where blue is relatively deep, and and red is relatively shallow. What you're seeing here is relief on the order of, of a couple of meters. So super good resolution. So, uh, so these are little uh, topographic expressions of these features on the seabed. So this is a great uh, ability that we never had before. And what do we do with data like that? Well, we go out to places like right offshore La Jolla, and we make these synoptic maps of the bathymetry. So this is a, a chart that. Uh, uh, was made using multi-beam bathymetry. And uh, you go out and you mow the grass back and forth and back and forth, and eventually you build up this, this super high-resolution image of, in this case, the, the, the canyon and, and, and fan valleys off, off the coast here. So this is old, older data that was done uh, with a different system. Uh, Sally Ride will be used to do similar things uh, all over the world. Another great capability that we'll have is, is coring. Coring is really important to try to understand uh, the uh, uh, recent history that's recorded in the upper layers of sediment. So we're going to use a, a, a stern-mounted coring uh, system initially on Sally Ride. Um, we're developing a, a, a bigger coring capability in conjunction with Oregon State University that we're pretty excited about. Um, but this is an important uh, uh, component of what we do uh, for geologists at sea. And, uh, <clears throat> Another thing that we do more and more of is using uh, ROVs and ocean robots. Uh, Sally Ride, because it's got great uh, DP capability, it's going to give us uh, the ability to, to, to deploy these systems. Uh, our own system, which is shown here, has uh, the ability to go into 2,000 meters. In the November, I'll be going out with, uh, uh, as chief scientist for, uh, with the, the HUI system, Jason. And we'll be operating uh, that big system for the first time on an ocean-class research vessel to prove that uh, it can be done. So um, what's next for Sally Ride? Um, um, these are our schedules right now. Um, we're still in this process where um, we've got a lot of uh, outfitting that we're doing here in San Diego. We're continuing to put the instruments on the ship and check them out. We've done a couple of practice cruises. We call them. Uh, science verification cruises. Uh, but uh, our next big uh, event is going to be a, an inspection by the National Science Foundation. Uh, and that's uh, the week of October 25th. And then we have our, our commissioning ceremony on the 28th. And shortly after that, on um, November 6th, we go to work. So uh, Harry mentioned the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigation, CalCoffee, which is so important to us here at Scripps. Uh, I'm proud to say that the first real science that we're going to be doing is uh, the next 
the next link in the Cal Coffee time series. We'll be going out with uh, uh, Mark Oman and, and Dave Checkley for that. Uh, and then after that, we go out with the ROV Jason. And then we have a couple more science verification cruises with uh, aerial systems and then uh, going to practice putting moorings in with Sally Ride. So the first year of operations is a lot of practice. Um, and then what you have to do after you've had it for a year is uh, you go into the shipyard, this period here, the shipyard uh, post-shakedown availability. So like a lot of things, a ship is guaranteed for a year. So what we've been doing, <laughs> what we've been doing for the first year is testing everything we can. And since it's a Navy-owned vessel, there's a special form that you have to fill out when you find something wrong. And you fill that form out, and uh, then after a year, you go back into the shipyard, and the shipyard has to fix all those things you identified. So we're madly doing that so that we can identify every, everything that we need to fix with the ship. And, you know, it's a great ship. It, it, it's a wonderful ship. But, but all of these are kind of bespoke, you know. They're, they're unique. So whenever you... It's not like driving a new car off the lot. When you drive a new ship off the lot, you just have to expect that a lot of your effort is going to be finding problems. And then if you're good, you fix those problems. And so that's what we're going to be doing when we go into our PSA. And then after that, we go to work for, uh, for 30 years. <laughs> um, so we're pretty much ready for science with Sally Ride. With that, I'll entertain any questions that you folks might have. When do you expect the first real scientific tour uh, to start? Who will be on it, and how long will it last? The, the first scientific mission? Um, that will be our Cal Coffee group. Um, so Mark Oman and Dave Checkley. Uh, on November 6th, we're going to go to sea for 16 days. And uh, that's part of the repeat surveys that our Cal Coffee group does. And uh, so they'll go out and they'll occupy the same stations that they've, uh, they've sampled for 66 years. Um, so it, it gives me sort of well, great pride to, to have that be one of the first things that Sally Ride does in her productive life. Uh, it's so important to Scripps, so important to California. For us to understand what's going on in our own California current and the ecosystem out there, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it'll be a great cruise. And I want to point out that we'll be following along with that here at the Birch Aquarium as part of the new uh, uh, expeditions exhibit that's going to be going on. We're very excited to be involved with Harry and, and his team here at the, at the aquarium. Did I consider gas turbine propulsion? I just want to point out that, that Scripps in our role, we were advisors. We had lots of great ideas, but the, the Navy was the one that came up with the, the design of the vessel. We had lots of good ideas, um, but we could only advise uh, the Navy in, uh, in what to build. Um, I think gas turbine would be just wildly expensive. Um, uh, the advantages of that are if you want to go zero to 30, I think, in a, in a couple of seconds. Uh, our, our funding agencies are very cost conscious. It turns out that diesel electric propulsion is, a, is an efficient way to do what we do, so we can, uh, we can go everywhere we need to and save money. That's a big, big important thing for us. And, and they have a relatively low environmental impact, which is part of our mission as well. I just had a quick question about deck space availability for plug-in container modules. Is there been an allowance for that on the working deck? And how big, and does it plug in directly with the ship's infrastructure for data processing? Scientists, a lot of times, want to bring uh, special 20-foot containers to sea, and they can be uh, outfitted all sorts of ways. Um, you can have a, a there, so if you've ever seen a shipping container, that's what these are. They're 20-foot ISO shipping containers, and they could be uh, uh, outfitted with a, a, a laboratory, or, uh, uh, or, or uh, you could use them for storage. They could be cold storage. Um, and they're very important because they allow you to bring functionality out to a ship that's not built into the vessel. So it's a nice modular way of doing more with a the ship. Um, these uh, containers were fundamental in, in, in the thinking of the, the, the planning process that went into these vessels. So on the, on, the, on the port side, there's a notch. In that notch, we can get two 20-foot containers side by side 
and we can stack uh, a second one on top of one of those, and that'll be accessible from the forecastle deck above. So you'll be able to fasten them to the deck. These are the ISO fittings on the deck, so you can fasten them there, and then you can put one on top, and then next to it we'll put our workboat, so there'll be two stories on both sides. And we have everything you need to hook up to those, uh, except for uh, sewage. So <laughs> you can't have a toilet in there, sorry. But there's toilets just outside uh, around uh, the bulkhead. But uh, we got power, we've got uh, communications, we've got networking, everything you need to go. It's plug and play. And it was part of the original design. So the original design for the ship had space for three in the back. Well, we thought it would be really cool if we put more space up in the front because we do a lot of work lately with climate scientists and atmospheric scientists who want to do things at the front of the ship. So they're not putting stuff in the water. A lot of times they're putting things on that look up, either radars or sensors that sense, uh, uh, measure uh, atmospheric chemistry and things, and they want to be in the front of the ship. So one of the things we're going to modify when we go into our PSA shipyard is we're going to put one, maybe two footprints uh, on the forward part uh, of the bridge to put uh, containers down there. So hopefully we'll be able to take five containers out with this ship. Yeah. So another thing that we did too, because we're scripts, right? We got so we, we had this advisory role with the Navy. We could advise them about things, but until we got the ship, we couldn't really do anything. Like I said, we can't do whatever we want now. We still have to ask the Navy if we want to make a modification, and uh, pretty much they say yes. But uh, we also thought that uh, you know the ship came uh, with berthing for 24 scientists. Well. It should be nice if you could take more scientists to see. So we found another spot for one more bunk. So uh, we can take 25 scientists out to see. So uh, I, I'm not going to say there's a competition between us and Woods Hole, but they'll be able to take 24, and we can take 25. <laughs> Who won second prize? Oh, that's a funny question. So, so the, the Navy um, built two ships, Agor 27 and Agor 28. Um, Sally Ride is Agor 28. So who got the second ship? We got the second ship. Who got the practice ship? Woods Hole. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.